Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. If you're here for the first time, we're so glad that you're with us today. You know, before we jump back into the book of Titus, in Titus 2, I want to get a few things out in front of you, uh, just a few things that are coming up. The weekend of September 10th through the 12th, this is a big weekend for us. Because Friday night, September the 10th, in downtown, uh, at 7 o'clock at, at FBC Tampa, we're hosting another night of prayer and worship uh, for our entire church. Everyone is invited. And y'all, I don't mean this lightly. Uh, these nights of prayer and worship for us are not only foundational in the life of our church, but they have proved time and time and time again to be key markers and absolutely monumental in moving our church forward to do all that God has called us to do. We gather together, we sing, and we earnestly beg God in prayer to move among us. Uh, it's something we've just made as a regular rhythm for our church uh, to pray and beg God for just crazy, bold, audacious things collectively. And we've been praying for over two years before we were ever here in the Tampa area, the Ephesians 3.20 prayer, that God would do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And when we do this, God delights in hearing our just crazy prayers. Because it's an act of worship. It shows that we actually believe that God is able. When we pray these things, uh, we're acknowledging to God that we're not able in our own strength, uh, but yet God, he is powerful and mighty, and that God loves to answer prayers that show that he is God and that we are not. And I hope you hear me very clearly on this. Uh, this has absolutely nothing to do with us uh, being great, but everything to do with knowing that God is able and that God is powerful and he is worthy of our crazy and bold, audacious prayers. And one of the many things we are praying for this fall is to see many people come to believe that Jesus is Lord, which is why we're starting the book of John on, September, on Sunday, September 12th, with the series titled, What Do You Believe? And if we are praying for a move of God, to see many come to profess faith that Jesus is Lord and enter into the waters of baptism, which we're also doing on September 12th. We want to see, if we want to see many more believe and be baptized, there is no doubt about it. It starts with getting on our faces and begging for God to move in power. In fact, I've been praying today all week long that someone in our midst today would respond in faith, believe in Jesus, and be baptized on September 12th. I, I pray this every Sunday, but God has impressed upon my heart to, to more earnestly pray for that today. You know, I have no clue what God's going to do. God can do whatever he wants, uh, but I refuse to let it be because uh, we don't continue to pray for it and ask for it. And so if you're here today and you have recently put your faith in Jesus, uh, we want to see you respond in faith on September 12th, or even if it's been a while and you just need to get baptized we want to see people go through the waters of baptism. And I want to make sure we understand that baptism has no power. Baptism does not save us. It's simply a public profession of faith declaring and symbolizing to the world that we have a new life in Jesus Christ. That you are a new creation. That the old life is gone and you're walking in the new life that is found in Jesus. And it is a huge celebration for our church. And it's the first step of obedience in the life of a new Christian. But also, uh, if you're here today and you're not really sure why you're here, uh, well, today, by the end of our time, I'm praying that you would believe in Jesus and that you would tell someone because if the gospel is true, which we'll talk about a lot today, if it's true, 
It literally alters eternity for your life. And it's something to be celebrated through the waters of baptism. And so all that to say, Friday night, September the 10th, come ready to pray and, to, and for God to move in power. Y'all, we have access to the power of God. And so we want to cry out to him to display it. But then also come ready that, that following Sunday that God, uh, to celebrate what God has done and what will do among us on September 12th through baptism. Because, because again, this fall, we're praying for God to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I want to invite you to start praying that prayer, that Ephesians 3.20 prayer with us this fall. Begging God to see a move of power, to see a revival of salvation, and also just a revival for weary souls. That being said, we're going to pivot here. And we're going to look back at Titus 2 um, as we look uh, specifically about how we think about the gospel and also work. As we get into the end of Titus 2 and into Titus chapter 3 today, we're going we're to continue to see how the gospel affects, continues to affect our everyday, ordinary life. And this week, we're going to see how it affects the way we work and our time at school and with our jobs and our careers. Uh, we've seen what God has called in the book of Titus, what he's called older men and older women to do, as well as younger men and younger women. Uh, and then today, we see more specifically uh, how he addresses those who work. He, he, Paul has been covering the whole spectrum of the church in Titus 2. And we're going to be in Titus 2, verse 7, all the way to Titus chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you're going to go ahead and read it. Uh, we're going to read the whole thing uh, all up front. And so look with me starting in, in verse 7 of Titus chapter 2. We have it up on the screen as well. This is what it says. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's our passage for today. And so right out of the gate, I want to go ahead and give you our main idea uh, and just kind of show you where we're going with our time, and it's to leverage your work for gospel purposes. That's our main idea. Leverage your work for gospel purposes and so we've got a few things to explain in our text before we can get there, because what we just read, you may think at first, it doesn't speak about work or a career or any job, but rather, I want to point out something 
that historically has caused tension and trouble. And so we're kind of jumping into the deep end here, right off the, right off the bat, right off the gate, right out of the gate. And it said our passage mentions the term bondservants in chapter 2, verse 9, which is another word, another translation for the word slave, which may be what your Bible actually says. And I know as soon as I say slave, the antennas pop up because it is a very uncomfortable word. And it likely brings to mind... For many of us, some sort of idea like the atrocity of American slavery, where people were bought and sold as a piece of property based on their ancestry and the color of their skin to be owned and done with, however they saw fit. And we need to acknowledge right out of the gate the tragedy that it was and how the Bible in no way condones or approves any type of slavery anywhere close to what we know of when we think of the 16th century American slavery. And we also need to acknowledge how many within the church historically have completely messed up passages like Titus 2, thinking that because it mentions slaves in our passage, thinking it therefore must be okay to have slaves, like we think of today, which we need to acknowledge is just wrong and a bunch of garbage, okay? Just wanted to get that out there. And so just like we did last week, we need to be careful not to say what the Bible does not say. One commentator said it this way, the Bible regulates slavery, it does not ordain it, require it, or, or condone it in any inhumane re- and way, but rather it speaks about it because it was common. It was a cultural norm during this time. And what we have to understand around this conversation of slavery, uh, and just generally with language and culture, is that different words have different meanings and were understood in different ways at different points in history, as well as within different cultures and people and time periods. And today, especially in a a modern-day American culture, we don't use terms like slave or servant because of the negative connotations that come with it. But during the time that Paul wrote this letter, it was generally understood that about a third of those that lived in Rome and about a fifth of those people everywhere else during this time were considered slaves. It was a large majority of a large group of people, not a majority, but a large group of people, and oftentimes it was voluntary for these slaves and not forced. That wasn't always the case, but many times it was. Uh, And people became slaves through various means, like being captured in a war or being sold off uh, by destitute parents as a way to feed and provide for their children, or maybe just as a way to pay off a debt, or maybe not being able to support themselves and so voluntarily selling themselves to work, kind of much like a contract employer today. And so being a slave during this time, unlike in American history, it did not discriminate against racial, social, or national lines. And yes, unfortunately, some were forced to work in fields and were not trusted or treated well. Where many others, on the other side of the spectrum, were highly skilled workers and were well-respected and trusted advisors and treated very well. And so we need to remember that labor laws and HR departments didn't exist during this time. And so the Bible provided guidance for how, people, how to treat people at work. Paul, in Ephesians 6, gives instructions to those who are over bond servants, over slaves, to not threaten them and to treat them well, reminding them that they belong to God first. And so because of the vague and all-encompassing meaning and connotation of what we think of when we think of slaves, many Bible translations don't use the word slave, and instead use words like bondservants, like we see in the ESV translation in Titus 2. But for us today, what I believe is a more helpful way to think about what Paul meant when he writes about slaves would be thinking more like a contract worker 
or maybe like an employee at a job or with a company or how we think of our relationship with a boss or a supervisor at work. And just like during the time of the Roman Empire, when Paul wrote uh, Titus this letter, some slaves, they had good masters and some had not so good masters. And the same is true for us today, where we all have had some good bosses in our, t- in our time and others, maybe not so good bosses. And I've had my fair share of crazy bosses that were difficult to work for. I had one boss uh, that would wake up, I'm not kidding, at 3 a.m. He would write a five-page email in the middle of the night to the entire Southeast management team and expect everybody to have a detailed response uh, before 8 a.m. with answers to all of his questions. <laughs> like, talk about waking up to a panic attack. Like, that's just what would happen every time I would receive one of these emails. I had another boss that would come into work for about 30 minutes to an hour uh, and then just kind of disappear like the entire day, leaving me to do everything. And then he'd come back when it was time for me to go home. You know, I could go on and on and on about some crazy bosses and work stories. I've seen bosses turn over tables and chairs, screaming and yelling, cutting out employees, showing inappropriate videos and pictures. But and just like I've had crazy bosses, I've also had crazy teachers and coaches that just made things very difficult and challenging just by the way they treated others. But for every crazy boss or teacher or coach story, I've also had really good bosses and coaches and teachers that have taught me a lot. So all that to say, what, we, what we'll see is that the book of Titus models for us how we work and more specifically how we interact with those who are in authority over us in a way that shows the beauty of the gospel. And so that said, well, I'm just going to give us a brief outline for our time. And here it is. This is number one, display the gospel through our work, declare the gospel where we work, and believe the work done in the gospel. So we have three charges for us today. Display, declare, and believe. To say the same thing more simply, we could say, display the gospel, declare the gospel, and believe the gospel, and leverage your work to make this happen. And as we've seen throughout the book of Titus, the gospel shapes and informs every nook and cranny of our life, including our vocation, including our career, including our work, and even how we approach school. And so we're going to go back through our passage, just a few lines at a time, but focus more on a few verses that are targeted towards work, spending a bulk of our time in this first point. And in doing so, we'll see our three charges, display, declare, and believe. Uh, And as I said, by the end of our time, I'm praying that some of you (laughs) would believe in Jesus for the first time. And so I pray that each of you would listen up And also, just be praying for me to this end. Look back at verse uh, 7 and 8 in Titus 2. Let's begin walking through our text. Verse 7 says, So show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So remember, Paul just finished speaking to the older men and women, and also to the younger men and women, which we've seen over the past two weeks. And in verse 7 and 8, he's giving a bit of a summary statement, uh, reminding each of them to be a model of good works that in their teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech and so, and, and so that their opponents would have nothing evil to say about them. The idea that Paul is emphasizing here is to not let their life be a stumbling block for others uh, so that others might be, that might be opposed to the gospel. Like, don't say one thing and do another. Our life and our faith might, uh, they must align. There's a common theme that we've seen throughout this entire book. Uh, who, who we are in private should be the same as who we are in public. Our public profession of faith needs to align with our private life. 
You know, I heard a podcast a few weeks ago about Titus 2. And one of the guys, his name's Keith Pickney, uh, he mentions how our reputation is what is portrayed in public, uh, where our private life, that reveals our true character. And so we need to ask ourselves, does our public reputation, those what others think about us and what they see, and our private life, our, our, our true character, do they actually match up? So we need to ask ourselves, are we as eager to build our character as we are to build our reputation? Because there is a difference. And what we see throughout the book of Titus is that the grace of God found in the gospel is what drives us towards godly character. And as we'll see in just a second, it absolutely includes our work. Look at verse 9 and 10 as we get into our first point. Uh, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So these two verses are instrumental for us in how we, how we think and how we approach, number one, uh, this, our first point, how we display the gospel through our work. So we'll spend a lot of time talking about the gospel today. And it's important uh, bec- that we have a grasp around this because we have that word gospel in every single one of our points. And before we dive too deeply into this first point on displaying the gospel through our work, we'll, uh, where we'll spend most of our time in this first point, I want to explain the gospel some first, uh, and then we'll dive ag- deeper into it again at the end of our time. And the reason the gospel is so important is because it's the fuel to our fire that steers the way we work. Like the gospel, it's our motivation that drives the way we work. Our motivation for work, it's not to please man. Our primary devotion is is not career advancement or a pay raise. Although, yes, all these things are are good. But uh, But those things are not our primary motivation. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 and also in Colossians 3.23 that we work first for God and not for man. And because of this, the gospel, what we'll talk about today, drives us to serve every customer as if they were Jesus. It drives us to show our bosses the same grace and forgiveness that God shows us every day. The gospel is what drives us to treat every test and paper and project as if we were turning it into God. It changes how we approach school. And if we're saying that the gospel changes everything, even how we work and approach school, then we need to ask ourselves, well, what is the gospel? And in short, the gospel is good news. But before we can understand the good news of the gospel, we need to first understand the bad news. And the bad news is that all of humanity, we all have major character flaws that we all have because of this thing called sin. And this same sin that messes up relationships, it also also makes work really difficult because of the fallen nature of humanity. And because of our sin and fallen nature, every person on the planet is eternally separated from God. Like we're separated. That's the bad news. But yet the good news of the gospel is that yes, although we can't save ourselves, God has made a way for us to be with him. God made a way to rescue us from our sin. God made a way for us through Jesus Christ. This is why we talk about Jesus so much. Jesus graciously came to save us and to rescue us. Just as we see, uh, just as verses 11 and 12 in Titus 2 tell us. Look what it says. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God came in the person of Jesus. This is our good news. 
Jesus came to rescue his people from the penalty of our sin, from their sin. And Jesus rescued, his rescue mission included him, included Jesus living a perfect life and then going to the cross, dying a criminal's death and being raised from the dead. Like we deserve the punishment of our sin, which is being separated from God. But Jesus took our punishment for us at the cross. Jesus went in our place, but Jesus didn't stay dead. No, Jesus rose from the dead, showing that he defeated sin and death, showing that Jesus was and is our rescuer. He's our savior forever. And our only responsibility in this rescue mission is to trust our rescuer, is to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Essentially, we're, we're like drowning in our sin without any hope. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent us a life raft named Jesus Christ. And if you have not trusted in Jesus, I want to plead with you. Trust in him. Believe in him. Take the raft. Jesus said, uh, say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm yours. And then tell someone. We'd love to celebrate that with you. Because listen, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God comes into our life. And he cleanses us. And Jesus makes us a brand new creation. And he gives us a new hope and a new purpose. And then he starts to transform every nook and cranny, every area of our life. And one of those many areas he transforms is how we think about work. This is one of the many ways. Because when God claims us as his through the gospel, our life is no longer about us. Our life becomes about Jesus and his purposes. And as Paul tells us in verse 14 of chapter 3, God then makes us zealous for good works. New City Church. We haven't even gotten to the meat of our first point, but before we get there, we needed to see what would motivate us. And so our motivation for work is not to please others. Again, it's not uh, to make more money. It's not for career advancement. Our, Our primary motivation for work is because it's an act of worship, knowing that we're working for God, for the God who saved us. We don't work for a boss. We don't work for a corporation. We work to please God in all that we do. And what we see today is that God is pleased when we work well and obey those who are in authority over us and not only that but another reason that compels us to work is because it provides an avenue to display the beauty of Jesus to the world around us because as we see in Titus 2 uh, verses 9 and 10 the way in which we work is one way it's one way of putting the gospel on display look at the end of verse 10 Right after Paul lists all these things we're to display at work while we serve, Paul says uh, the reasoning for all of this, the second half of verse 10, is so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Which again leads me all the way back to our first point to further explain how we, number one, again, just to show, show you again, display the gospel through our work. In essence, what Paul is saying is that these characteristics that we are to, that we are to display at work while serving And while we serve, uh, that we'll look at in just a second, uh, they put on display the doctrine of God. They show the greatness of Jesus. They point to God in his glory. They show grace and mercy and forgiveness and goodness and patience. They show all of this about who God is. We're in essence displaying the gospel through the way we work. All this to say how we work and how we approach school and sports. And even those who have authority over us, what we'll see at the beginning of Titus chapter 3, the way we interact and live with these different, in these different arenas are a means to put Jesus on display to a world that is just different. It shows something different. Look back at verses 9 and 10. Again, 
Look what it says, bondservants, just to, just to see the list. Bondservants are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so if we were to ask the question, how do we put our faith on display at work? Like practically, what does that look like? Paul answers that question by saying, be submissive to your masters in everything. Or to say it another way, to rephrase it, if your boss asks you to do something, do it. Like if you have a task that you're given, don't be argumentative. That's what he says. Don't question everything. Don't give a lot of pushback. Be well-pleasing. Be kind and just do it. I love that it says in verse 10, uh, not pilfering, which to me just seemed like a funny way of saying don't steal anything. Uh, like don't cheat your timesheet. Don't fudge on your expense report or how, lo- or how you log your miles. Be honest. Be above reproach at all times. These are all just simple and practical ways, Paul says, to adorn the doctrine of God. Or just, how we, just to say it another way, how we show uh, that Jesus is beautiful and worthy and respectful to show that God's ways are better. And something I want to point out that falls under this in a kind of a similar way is later, we see it again, we kind of see a similar list later at the beginning of chapter 3, where we see somewhat of a comparable list to those who are specifically in authority over us. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Look what it says. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So Paul here, he's kind of shifted from the work environment to obey uh, uh, to anybody who has a rule or authority over us, which also includes work, but it also includes school and teachers and coaches and government officials. Paul essentially says, says if there are rules, obey them. If it's not causing us to sin and disobey God, then we are to obey those in authority over us, even if we don't agree with them or think that things should be done differently. And hear me on this, okay? If it's not leading us to sin or disobey God's moral law, then we are to obey the rules that are put in place. That means all things, like simple things, like traffic laws and government laws and regulations, Team rules and house rules, campus rules, classroom rules, work and employer rules. Like whatever it is, if it's not against God's moral standard, obey the rules. Obey those who are in authority, who, uh, obey those who are in authority in whatever place you're in, and then just don't argue and complain about it. Paul says in chapter 3, verse, verse 2, he says, Don't speak evil of anyone, which includes those in authority. I mean, people like that police officer that gave you a speeding ticket. Don't speak evil about them. Or the teacher or professor that has a silly rule. Or that business or restaurant or government that has a rule or a law law you think is silly. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 3 about these things, don't argue and don't speak evil about it. Paul says, rather, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. Again, if it's not causing us to sin or disobey God, then we obey the rules and laws that are put in place by those who have rule and authority over us. Because if we don't, we're disobeying God. That's what we see in Titus 3 verses 1 and 2. And when we do these things or obey and don't speak evil and are gentle and show courtesy to all people, these are all things that display the character of God. And y'all, I get it, okay? I'm just not a natural rule follower. (laughs) Uh, This is something over the past 18 years of my Christian life I've just really had to grow in um, because my natural flesh is just to reject rules that I think are silly. My natural reaction is to just kind of question and analyze everything. That's just kind of the way I'm wired, which is not always bad and is sometimes helpful. But for those who have authority over me, just growing up in school and in sports and in some uh, 
work environments, I've had to learn how to obey the hard way. Like growing up, I had a really bad habit of just laughing whenever I was disciplined. And, and y'all, this never went well for me. Like, but yet I just kept doing it. Like I kept laughing. And it just never ended well. And one day I was on a military base as a Boy Scout. And for whatever reason, the drill sergeant just kind of picked me out of the crowd uh, because he saw I wasn't too interested in what he was doing. Uh, and what did my bonehead teenage self do? I just kind of laughed and gave him a little smirk, and I winked at him. It just like, y'all, this did not go well for me, uh, because my, just because of my lack of respect for authority. And all of my friends, including me, we were all penalized the rest of the day. And let's just say we did a lot of push-ups that day because of my lack of authority. And I was just as Paul said in Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So in essence, to answer the question, why do we obey, the, why do we obey those in authority over us if it's not leading us to sin or disobey God? Because it shows that we're different. It shows the beauty of God. It shows that our worth is not tied up in rules or a person and that our confidence and worth is in Jesus alone. Listen, when our confidence and identity is wrapped up in Jesus and the way he thinks of us, we're able to serve and obey others because remember, we're working for the Lord and not for man. And hear me on this. It does not mean we're a pushover. No, we stand firmly on the word of God. The gospel is offensive. It just is. Like, it's, it's a message that pronounces spiritual life or death. And it can be offensive to some. And so if we're to offend people, may we first offend them with the gospel. May we not offend people with our actions before we offend them with the gospel. And so, yes, we are to display the gospel with our kindness and submission to rulers and authorities and in the way we work. But we can't forget, as we talk about often, the gospel displayed without the gospel proclaimed. It is not yet good news. Like, if we never speak of Jesus in a bloody cross that provides forgiveness of sin, we haven't yet shared good news. And I know this is very blunt, but this is true. We can display good works, but people will still go to hell if they don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul said in verse 15, right after he speaks about the gospel in verses 11 to 14, he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all, all authority. Let no one disregard you. New City Church May we display the gospel at work and through our work, but in doing so, we can't stop there. We must also, number two, the, declare the gospel where we work. Again, Paul said, declare these things. And as says, declare the gospel, speak it. The message of the gospel is to be proclaimed, is to be spoken. It must be heard. Our family members and friends, they can't respond to the gospel if they don't hear the gospel. May we be a people that regularly declare it. But yet, what I want to emphasize today in this regard is how we proclaim and declare the gospel where we work. And we spent two weeks here talking about discipleship and the importance of it here at New City and how we value authentic relationships and intentional discipleship. Two out of our three core values and our third core value we see here is missional urgency. And when we think about living on mission, a major part of that is to live on mission where we live, where we work, and where we play. 
and to do, just to do what we love to do, but do, it, do what you're already doing, but be strategic with what you do for gospel proclamation. And where we work, whether in the home or in the business world or at school, we need to ask ourselves, how can we leverage these spaces to proclaim the gospel? And I get it. Like, not every work environment is conducive for easy gospel proclamation. But I do know some work environments are. Like, if you have time to talk about your hobbies and family and everyday life, and it's not distracting you from work, we also have time to talk about Jesus. I've been in work environments working beside someone all day long in more labor-intensive environments where it's just easy to talk and it's easy to share the gospel. We need to use those opportunities to leverage those and share the gospel with people. I've also been in work environments where you literally can't do your job well and also talk about Jesus at the same time. And because of that, more intentionality uh, with lunch breaks and after work was necessary. But at the end of the day, evangelism, it takes intentionality. Like, make a plan Pray about the plan and then execute the plan and then just let God do his thing. Evangelism, uh, it's, it's, it's a simple way of doing it. We, it takes boldness. We've talked about you know, how we want every person at New City to be in a discipleship group with three to five people either discipling someone or being discipled or both. But we also want to see every person have three to five people regularly in their life that don't know Jesus with the hopes of sharing the gospel with them. And if you don't know who those three to five people are, start with where you live in your neighborhood. Start with where you work and also where you play, just kind of where you have fun, your hobbies. And a really good starting place is just to make it a goal to spend about one hour a week with a person that doesn't believe in Jesus. And here, please hear me on this. This is not some sort of project. We do this because we love them and we want them to have what has changed our life. Because evangelism and sharing our faith, it is an act of love evangelism is an act of love. If the gospel is true, sharing Jesus is the most loving thing that we can do. I mean, here's just a really simple tool for us. I mean, just think uh, of a few questions that can engage others in spiritual conversations that can be an entryway into the gospel. I mean, here's one. Like, are you a spiritual person? It's a really simple question. Or, hey, what's your story? I'd love to hear it. Or maybe ask, what's been something that has influenced your life? Or uh, here, here's a fun one. Like, if you had a, a, an hour-long lunch with Jesus, what would you ask him? You could ask him anything. What would you ask him? I mean, all of these are just a way to start the conversation that can get to the gospel. But we also have, we have to lead it to uh, the death and the resurrection. Like, the gospel without the bloody cross, it's not the gospel. These questions, these, these can all be used in different settings, and yes, even with our coworkers. And I want to challenge all of us to ask the question, how can we leverage our work or our career to advance the gospel here in Tampa and around the world? Like, what does this look like for you? That's something to think about and pray about and consider. Like, that's the question. How can we leverage our work to advance the gospel here in Tampa and around the world? And I'm praying that we would be zealous to both display and declare the gospel in those unique spaces, like our work, that God has given each of us. And I'm not, I'm not praying that for us just here in Tampa, but like I said, also around the world. Like, we don't hide it or hold back. That we want to do whatever it takes to send as many people as possible around the world to the most unreached parts of the world. Yes, we want to send full-time missionaries, vocational missionaries, and church planners, but we also want to send businesswomen 
and businessmen and teachers and engineers and doctors and humanitarian workers and medical professors and, and farmers and tech people and retirees uh, and whatever else we do to places where people with seminary degrees aren't welcome. Like what if God has given you or, or gives you a unique opportunity to go to a country through your career where full-time missionaries would never be allowed to step foot in because it's illegal? Maybe today God is stirring some of your hearts to consider that, to leverage your career to advance the gospel among the unreached around the world that have never, ever had the chance of hearing about Jesus. Like, I don't think everybody is called to move cross-culturally, but I do believe God wants to send way more than are going. Then what if God wants to send you and use your work to make that happen? If God is stirring your heart towards that, let's talk. I would love to talk with you because preparation for this, it starts way before it's actually time to go. You know, I want to do whatever it takes to live out the Great Commission around the world. And a major part of that, I believe, will include our, re- our work or our retirement. We pray often that people would do what they love, but do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And I can't think of a more strategic place to use your career or your retirement than in a place where the name of Jesus is not known. If you are a Christian here today and you believe the gospel and cherish the gospel and you claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, then the call for you today is to again display the gospel through your work and declare the gospel where you work. We have an urgent mission from God and our workplace is a major part of that. And so may we use it strategically for gospel purposes. But then lastly, just to end our time, if you're here today, and you are not a Christian, I'm praying with, a whole, with my whole heart that, number three, you would believe the work done in the gospel. Y'all, this is really for everybody. We need to remember, we all need to remember this daily. It's what drives and empowers us. But more specifically, for the person in the room that is not a Christian, or maybe you thought you were a Christian, but maybe today you've understood it in a whole new way. That was, that was me for 16 years of my life. I thought I was a Christian, But then when I understood what it meant to be a Christian, I realized I wasn't actually a Christian. And and maybe that's you today. We've spent a lot of time talking about work, which actually is what most people think Christianity is all about. And I'm not talking about career work at this point. I'm talking about our good works, like our character and our actions. I mean, most people think about being a Christian is about being a good person and doing good things and being a good moral person. And let me clear the air for us today. Being a Christian has absolutely nothing to do with our good works. Doing more good than bad and even going to church and even reading the Bible, those things do not make us Christians. Again, growing up, I thought I was a Christian because we celebrated Christmas and Easter, went to church and we said a prayer before dinner. But hear me. Those things do not make us Christians. Being a Christian has absolutely nothing to do with what we do or what we don't do. Being a Christian has everything, everything to do with what Jesus has done at the cross. That's it. And our only response is to believe. To believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and to believe that Jesus is Lord. And in believing that alone, our sins are forgiven and we are made new. And through the simple act of belief by saying to God, God, I believe, 
I believe Jesus' work done at the cross. I believe that it saved me from my sins. Through that simple belief, through that alone, God calls us his own. Like we're called his children. That's it. That's what makes us a Christian. Every other, every other religion on the planet says do, and the gospel tells us it has already been done. At the cross, Jesus finished the work. And this is exactly what Paul says in Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. Look what it says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, I know there's a lot there. But in short, more simply put, God saves us not by our works done by us, as he said in verse 5, but because of Jesus' work at the cross. God washes us. God renews us. And as he said, he pours out on us richly through Jesus. We're his heirs is what it says. When we come to Jesus because of the cross every day, we're clean and we're considered new. Christian, remember that today. You're clean and new because of the cross. And this is my plea to you. If you have not put your faith in Jesus and believe that Jesus' work at the cross alone was sufficient, I want to plead with you today, believe Believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and has forgiven you of your sins and has made you completely new. Again, it's not our works that makes us a Christian. It's Jesus' work at the cross that makes us a Christian. And if this is the very first time you have ever understood that, the idea of being a Christian has nothing to do with what we do but everything to do with what Jesus has done, I want to praise God today. And I want, I want to call you to respond in faith and say, Jesus, I believe. If that, if that is you, if, that, if God has placed that in your heart and mind, praise the Lord. And would you, would you tell someone here today? Would you tell someone? Because we want to celebrate with you because God, I, I believe God has so much more in store for your life. Because God's daily grace in the gospel, it daily fills our souls and it renews our strength. God wants to see you as we've seen today. He wants to see you display the gospel. He wants to see you proclaim the gospel. And he wants to see others around you believe the gospel with you. And quite possibly, just like the rest of us, he wants to see you leverage your work for his purposes here in Tampa and around the world. Let's pray. God, I have, I have no clue what is going on in the hearts and minds of those in this room or maybe watching online. But Father, if there is someone here today that has believed in Christ for the first time, I, I pray that you would uh, give them the boldness just to tell someone. Father, I pray that if they have not yet believed, that they, they would believe in Jesus. They would respond in faith. Father, today is the day of salvation. God, we, we pray for this. We're excited to see people baptized, people proclaiming Christ to the world through baptism on September 12th. Father, we're praying for more. We're praying for more. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.